Frank, enough is enough for Hong Kong. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Renita Malhotra-Hora. The U.S. Fed shuts off the printing presses. U.S. stocks and other asset classes decline on the news. And Baidu misses Q3 estimates amid a push into mobile search. Today on Money for Nothing, we will talk about the financial compensation claims made against the organizers behind the umbrella movement. Joining us for that discussion is legal expert Rick Glovcheski, a faculty member of the Department of Law at the University of Hong Kong. Also on the program to discuss recent investments in India tech by Japan's SoftBank is RTHK's India correspondent Murli Krishnan. And Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting will join us by telephone from South Korea, where he's attending a conference of the World Federation of Exchanges. Alex Wong of Ample Capital will be, a, will be with us in the studio today throughout the half hour as guest host. Good morning, Alex. Well, look at today's top stories. QE is done for now. The U.S. Federal Reserve has confirmed that it will uh, end its money printing program, uh, one that has popped up the U.S. economy and financial markets for close to six years. And over these past six years, the Fed has spent almost four trillion U.S. dollars buying up financial assets in what it calls quantitative easing. But as AP's David Melendy reports, the U.S. Central Bank is keeping its key short term interest rate at record lows. No surprises here. The Fed policymakers, the Federal Open Market Committee, says there's been substantial improvement in the outlook for the labor market and sufficient underlying strength in the broader economy. So it'll go ahead with ending its asset purchase program this month. The FOMC also has reaffirmed its view that keeping its key short-term interest rate, the federal funds rate, between zero and a quarter percent will be appropriate for a considerable time. Constance Hunter, who is the chief economist for alternative investments at KPMG, said that the language came as a surprise. Uh, I think that maybe that was a compromise, but I see that we don't have the hawkish dissenters dissenting this time. We certainly saw some nervousness in the equity markets last week. We've seen very low interest rates in the U.S. Bonds took another leg down. And a lot of that has to do with the international situation, which has gotten worse or continues to deteriorate, I should say. And... um, And so I think the Fed is somewhat concerned about that impact, even though they haven't said so explicitly in the statement. And then the other thing, of course, is is what's happening with the labor market and the concern that um, there are still very uneven results, even though we have a very low unemployment rate. But Kathleen Gaffney, co-manager of investment-grade bonds at Eaton Vance, disagrees. I don't think it was a surprise. It was very balanced because that's where they want to keep the markets. We have shut the door on quantitative easing, but the story isn't over yet. We still have to transition to a new environment. And the economy is giving us the right signals, moving in the right direction, but there are still some concerns. We're watching what's going on around the world with deflation. And so there really is no need to tighten, but we've closed the door on quantitative easing. 
Markets took a deeper dive into the red on the news. Uh, there was negative impact on practically all asset classes. The Dow dropped 31 points to 16,974. The S&P 500 was down more than a tenth of a percent to 1,982, while the Nasdaq fell a third of a percent to 4,549. Spot gold extended declines as well. The dollar extended fresh highs against the yen and against the euro. And on the bond front, treasuries extended their drop. Crude oil futures paired gains too. Alex, Hmm. so we've had no surprises on the QE. We've gotten the news that we were expecting. Uh, So why are the markets uh, so upset about this? No, I think the market was not too upset. Uh, We are talking about um, a very small uh, change, actually. But um, we saw some strength in the U.S. dollar. That is the major change after the announcement. I think uh, people had been uh, covering up their um, position in the U.S. dollar. So um, when they see something um, doesn't ch- uh, see the, the things are keeping unchanged, so um, they, they I think they just renewed uh, their buying of the U.S. dollar. And then we saw some correction and profit taking in the stock market, and also some corporate actually announced the disappointing results uh, after the. Uh, uh, this is two, these two days also pressure the market. All right, let's bring in Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting. He's in Seoul uh, and joins us by phone. He's attending a conference there uh, of the World Federation of Exchanges. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Vanita. So, Peter, you have been moderating a panel, and the topic of your panel is on how to return trust to the markets. Very appropriate given sort of this grand ending of QE, if you will. Um, tell us who's there. And what's being discussed? Well, the World Federation of Exchanges represents is the industry body that represents all the uh, the major um, stock exchanges, uh, futures exchanges, options exchanges around the world. So it has 64 members. The Hong Kong um, Exchange is a member, as are um, the Chinese um, stock stock exchanges and commodity exchanges. Um, so it's a it, it's a big industry body. Um, it had its 54th annual conference uh, this year in um, Seoul, which was hosted by the uh, the Korean Exchange. Um, and the CEOs and chairman of, um, of many of the world's largest exchanges were, were here, including the New York Stock Exchange, the CME, um, Gary Jones, who's the CEO of the LME, which, as we know, is now owned by the, uh, the Hong Kong Exchange, was here, um, and the Shanghai Exchange and uh, the various commodity exchanges in China were well um, represented. So one of the big talking points was really the, the perception amongst market participants that markets are, are, are rigged and are fixed because the, the leveling of confidence in the market has taken quite a big hit over the last few years. We've had some fairly big scandals, the, uh, the LIBOR fixing scandal, for example. We've had the demise of um, Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, MF Global and others. So a lot of the focus was on how to correct that impression and how to rebuild um, trust in the markets and and regain uh, confidence in the markets. And can that actually be achieved? I mean, this is uh, really ties into sort of QE coming to an end today after six years. Uh, QE was put into place, you know, for these very reasons, because of these very uh, crises, you know, that we've seen in the market since 2008. What's the word? 
Well, exchanges actually have a critical role to play in, um, in restoring trust in global financial markets because a lot of the problems have occurred in products that trade OTC, in other words, off um, regulated exchanges. So things like the subprime uh, mortgage securitizations, which blew up in 2008, the LIBOR scandal, which is really about market participants um, creating a benchmark which is critically important to the financial markets. Many, many products um, are, are priced off of LIBOR, and it turned out that those market participants were really manipulating and rigging those very important benchmarks. So one of the ways to get around that is to actually ask ex exchanges themselves to create those um, sort of prices by using real trade data as opposed to asking market participants what, what they think the, the, the levels ought to be. So Euronext, for example, is going to um, create the LIBOR benchmark. Uh, the Hong Kong exchange is, is asking to be um, the, the creator of a gold um, sort of benchmark. So exchanges are going to play an increasingly important role um, in, 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 in this type of um, sort of new environment. Alex, what do you think of that, of the Hong Kong exchange creating a gold benchmark? Well, I think... Um I think that is of of course a a, a certification of Hong Kong state as status in the financial market, and um, I think they will help to 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 boost the um, in confidence a little bit actually. All right. Um, speaking of exchanges, uh, Peter, let us know if anyone was there from Hong Kong or Shanghai, and if there's any update on the Stock Connect. Yes, um, Gary Jones, who is the CEO of the London Metals Exchange, spoke on one of the panels, and he was asked specifically about uh, Hong Kong-Shanghai Connect. Um, now, he was optimistic that that would go ahead um, once it's got approval, um, although he couldn't give any dates as to, to when that was going to happen. Um, and we know from what Charles Lee said last week that the reason for the delay is they're waiting for various approvals. Now, the SFC have come out and said that they have already approved it, so those approvals must be from China and there's two bodies in China that would need to approve this link before it can go ahead. One is the Chinese regulator, the CSRC, and then the other body is the State Council of, um, of China. So th the State Council of China is not going to approve anything until the CSRC gives the go-ahead. So th there is certainly the possibility that there's a, a political element in this given um, what's been going on in, um, in Hong Kong recently, although no one has come out in China and said that. But we do know that you know, all the brokers and exchanges are ready. There's no technical reason as to why they couldn't move ahead. It, it is also possible that there's a much more benign reason, and that is that the CR, CSRC is very, very risk-conscious. It moves very, very slowly when it comes to authorizing new products. And that's true even of products that, that trade in China. So, for example, um, the, the new options market, where we're going to see options launched on stocks, on stock indices, on commodities, um, still haven't been approved by the CSRC, although um, the exchanges and the brokers are all ready um, uh, to launch them. And in the case of index futures, it took the CSRC three years to approve them between um, you know, the first announcement that they were going to come into play and then actually getting the final approval. So the CSRC is a very slow-moving, very cautious body um, and very, very risk-aware of, um, of, of the uh, 
of the impact of, of going ahead too quickly with new products and new initiatives. All right. Peter, we've just got uh, a very short amount of time in about 20 seconds or so. Uh, just uh, want to touch on the topic of uh, the performance of European banks yesterday. Deutsche Bank reported a $117 million loss after it set aside more money to cover costs stemming from accusations of wrongdoings by its employees. Can you very briefly uh, let us know how the Eurostoxx Bank Index did yesterday? Um, it performed very badly. The Eurostoxx Bank Index fell 3.2% yesterday, much, much more than the broader index, which was only down half a percent. Um, some of the banks that have fallen recently have been those that have failed the stress tests. But rather more alarmingly, there were a whole range of banks yesterday that, um, even though they passed the stress test, still fell quite sharply, like Unicredit, BBVA, and some of the peripheral banks in, in Greece um, in particular took a very big hit um, yesterday. So there are some concerns reappearing about the strength of um, uh, banks across the Eurozone. All right. Thank you so much for joining us from Seoul, Korea. That is Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting. The time is now 8.15 a.m. and this is Money for Nothing. Well, Japanese telecom and internet giant SoftBank has announced its intent to invest nearly 10 billion U.S. dollars in India over the next few years with Masayoshi Son, the $92 billion billion conglomerate's chairman and founder, expected to kick off investments during his trip to India, where he will meet with several entrepreneurs. We're now joined by South Asia correspondent Murali Krishnan to tell us more on this. Good morning, Murli. Good morning. So, Murli, this is clearly one of the biggest investment commitments uh, from a Japanese firm after Prime Minister Narendra Modi's visit to the country a couple of months ago, yes? Yes, absolutely. You know, Japan's SoftBank Corp has become the latest company to bet on India's nascent international market, and it's already unveiled more than $800 million of investments and two Indian startups, and it's pledged to sink in more in the coming years to come. So clearly this is a very big move. And um, in fact, the Japan's richest man, who's already invested in $20 million in the Chinese e-commerce giant Alibaba, is, is eyeing more investments in e-tailing and technology companies in India. And uh, the fact that he's already met up with the Prime Minister uh, Narendra Modi, as well as other important ministers in his cabinet, he has suggested that the government should speed up the rollout of telecom infrastructure and quickly move to nationwide 4G services. And obviously the fact is um, he knows what he's speaking. And uh, I I I was talking to an economic analyst, M.K. Vernu, on the importance of this investment and, and what it means for digital business growth in the country. And this is what he said. The SoftBank uh, chairman who was uh, here and met the Prime Minister, he seems to be uh, very impressed with India's new vision to create digital India, as it were. So he thinks that there's a lot of business opportunity for SoftBank. They have a lot of money. And he thinks that India is a place where there's huge opportunity because the market has not grown. And when he met the Prime Minister, he told the PM that India is ripe for an Alibaba-like company to be uh, nurtured here. And a Jack Ma-like entrepreneur should be born in India. Indeed, he has shown some interest by buying a stake in Snapdeal. Uh, He's paid some $680 million. He is interested in, in India's 
online retail space and generally in india's uh, uh, digital uh, uh, vision uh, that uh, prime minister modi has outlined in the last month or so you know leaders of the world's largest technology companies have come calling to india uh, you've got amazon facebook microsoft murli are we beginning to see the beginning of a digital revolution Yeah you're absolutely right in that the fact is this is something which India has never seen before you know you have Jeff Bezos from Amazon Satya Nadella from Microsoft Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook Sundar Pichai from one of the three Googleites all visiting India in a span of one month and now you have SoftBank Masayoshi Som who's touring India so i think more today more than ever before i think global technology companies are eyeing India and therefore when the prime minister uh, narendra modi said in his august 15th uh, independence day uh, speech asking everyone to come and make in india i think the slogan should be turned around and said come and expand in india and i think india should be taking a cue from china's uh, digital boom story at least partially because china's interest in in in, in incubating domestic digital business growth but more importantly i think you know china has um, almost about chinese digital economy now contributes close to around 4.5% to the chinese economy so i think we should be taking a a cue from this and uh, mr vernu who had this to say on the arrival of tech giants to india it is a key driver because increasingly it is seen that manufacturing in the 21st century is not generating kind of employment that one used to expect back in the 70s and 80s because technology driven manufacturing is not absorbing employment that is the experience of many emerging economies and where employment is really getting absorbed is in the services sector where india has uh, its uh, strengths and especially internet based new economy business ventures especially in the online space which seems to have a huge potential for producing employment which is what the softbank chairman impressed upon prime minister narendra modi all right thank you and thank you so much for joining us this morning that was murli krishnan rthk's south asia correspondent Baidu's third quarter sales missed analyst estimates as the owner of China's largest internet search engine pushed deeper pushes deeper into mobile services revenue climbed 52% to 13.5 billion yuan that's just 0.1 billion yuan short of analyst estimates the company's Q4 sales forecasts also fell short of predictions And ICBC, which is the world's largest lender by assets, has reported its biggest jump in bad loans since 2006. All this as China's property market slumped and the economy cooled. Non-performing loans rose 9% in the third quarter from the previous three months, and net income gained 7.7% from a year earlier. Alex, how should um, how concerned should banks be about bad loans given the struggling Chinese economy? I think uh, the major risk still come from the property sector and uh, although we see some revival in interest uh, after the government relaxed the policies uh, recently but I think uh, generally I think the the property market boom have been so long and and 
probably the market expectation has changed. People probably would uh, take a wait and see and to, to, to buy houses. So that means uh, the the housing the housing market probably would have some risk in uh, to have a, a major corrections, and that means uh, bad for banks. That's why we are seeing banks trading at a very low valuation these these days because uh, they have to um, take into account of this risk. Okay. A quick look at the numbers. The Nikkei is open and up three-tenths of a percent to 15,598. Australia's ASX is up also uh, two-tenths of a percent to 5,441. And Seoul's KOSPI is down two-tenths of a percent to 1,956. In currency markets, the euro is currently trading at 1.26 US dollars. The US dollar is at 108 yen and the pound is at 12.41 Hong Kong dollars. Brent crude oil is now at 87 dollars and 12 cents per barrel and gold is down at 1211 dollars and 10 cents per ounce Well, claims for compensation have been made by business owners who suffered from traffic disruptions linked to the umbrella movement. But are individuals liable for the losses? Our producer, Chris Oliver, has the story. Good morning, Chris. Good morning, Renita. Uh, uh, we know that uh, businesses in Mongkok and Causeway Bay, amongst other areas in the city, have been affected somewhat uh, to varying degrees by the traffic disruptions. Uh, now, can these people sue the organizers behind the movement? So we know that uh, earlier this month there was a travel firm uh, launched a court case against Occupy Central co-founder Benny Tai. Uh, to discuss this issue, we're joined by Rick Golefsky. He's editor of the Hong Kong Law Journal and a lecturer at the Department of Law at HKU. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Chris. So who is liable for these business losses? Well, as a, as a matter of law, I'm not sure that uh, anyone is uh, it, it it's open to uh, persons who claim to have suffered losses to bring a legal action, and I think that's the right way to go. But um, one needs to fashion a legal cause of action in order to make a claim for compensation, and that that's difficult in circumstances like this. So in, in the past few weeks, the story has ticked a little bit ahead, uh, and we've seen that there were court injunctions filed by an association of taxi drivers and a minibus company that's against the blockades in Mongkok. In addition, uh, CIDIC, uh, the property group that's uh, mainland-focused, uh, has uh, filed a court injunction to open up uh, access in Admiralty. Uh, these ex- these uh, injunctions, they were extended last uh, earlier this week. Does this embolden the case at all against uh, the li- legal liability of the organizers? Well, well I think it, it does to some limited degree. I mean, it ramps up uh, the degree of, let's say, the degree of unlawfulness by some imperceptible uh, degree, uh, you now have a court order requiring the um, some the, the unnamed persons to vacate the area. But to, I don't know really though whether it makes that much difference. Um, they were already engaging in illegal conduct, and they are now. One should also remember that the injunctions that were obtained, and I, th- I think it was the right move. Uh, in the sense that the legal system is being activated. But the injunctions are interim in nature. They're not permanent. So there's never been a full hearing of all of the issues, and that is yet to come. So we have to bear in mind that this is a uh, just a, a sort of a preliminary determination by a court that in all the circumstances um, an order is warranted. It's a rare, uh, very infrequent occurrence to, to get an interim injunction. It happened 
Uh, and uh, I think um, now uh, we'll see what the response is. But one should not confuse the obtaining of an injunction with a claim for compensation. In fact, it is often the case that an injunction is, is ordered because compensation or, or damages uh, cannot be ascertained or there's simply not an adequate remedy. So, so a compensation claim does not follow from an order for injunction. In fact, it may very well suggest that the compensation claim is going to be very difficult. Public, you, sorry, public nuisance is the right action for a for a compensation claim, it, it, but it only it can be ordered where a per- person can prove particular and direct damage above and beyond the rest of the community, and whether any particular group can do that remains to be seen. Now, you mentioned uh, in an earlier article published uh, earlier this month in the SCMP that one of the difficulties is actually proving, if you're a business, that uh, your losses are directly linked to the actions of, for in this case, the protesters or traffic disruptions, because losses can accumulate from a variety of sources. Um, Can you just take a moment and explain that? Well, uh, I think, you know, the listeners of this show and, and the producers are, are very uh, familiar with, you know, the ups and downs of, uh, of businesses. You know, you, you have uh, uh, earnings and you have losses and they can ha- happen for a variety of reasons. Now, if we look at the case, at, at the kinds of claims that would be brought here, um, you have firstly an issue, uh, a difficult problem of quantification. Now, you, for instance, take take the taxi drivers. Um, if they were actually to try to seek compensation for any losses, I imagine you were, say, one taxi driver. How would you quantify that? And, and in fact, were there any losses at all, given that, as far as I can tell, taxis are very much in demand these days? They may, for all we know, be earning more money, although it's inconvenient to get from point A to point B. But the real problem is, how can you point to any individual and say, he or she is the cause of my loss? Uh, there are many uh, thousands of people that have participated, and some of them only in a transient way, others uh, for a, a, a longer period of time, and in different ways. Some have not blocked the roads. They have stayed off of the roads. This is just, for a court of law, very, very difficult. Some people have argued that the government also is liable for failing to bring a resolution to the issue. But uh, we're short on time. I just want to move ahead. You make the case that uh, the government would actually be best uh, advised to establish a fund at this point, when that might be the best way to kind of speed up these remedies. And, and that would function much in the, in the way as it would a natural disaster, such as a flood or earthquake. Yes, Chris, I think that's a good analogy that you've made. Uh, I think we see this sort of, a, you know, a response by governments around the world, and I don't think it would be out of the question for that to happen here for, for a whole range of reasons, and it would certainly serve to, to calm uh, the community if uh, those businesses knew that going forward they had something to look forward to by way of um, compensation. All right, well, thank you very much. That's Professor Rick Golevsky of the Department of Law at Hong Kong U. And thank you, Chris. All right, Alex, uh, we've got just a moment or so before we close the show. So any parting thoughts? Well, I think uh, today probably we would uh, see a quiet day uh, in Hong Kong after the recent movement. Uh, but uh, looking forward, I think uh, people would still focus on the um, uh, corporate earnings in the U.S. and then uh, also this QE uh, impact on the, um, I think, on the emerging market and the Europe market. That probably would provide some cues uh, for, for the next move, uh, major move in the market. Are you expecting anything exciting, let's just say, for as far as impact on local markets go? Uh, for Hong Kong, not much. I think uh, we are still um, probably... Uh, 
um, going high. We, we, we probably would still go higher later on. After this month, we have seen so many negative factors, so we have stabilized and probably we would uh, uh, move a little bit higher. But uh, later on, I think uh, after this uh, uh, QEN, probably we would really need to take a cue from other emerging markets because uh, probably we would see some, some more... Uh, movement in in other emerging markets later on. All right. Thank you. And thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Alex Wong of Ample Capital, who joined us this morning as guest host. And thank you to Chris Oliver, our producer. A quick look at the weather forecast before we close shop for the day. Uh, we'll have cloudy periods at first, but it'll be mainly fine during the day with a maximum temperature of about 28 degrees Celsius. Right now, the temperature is 25 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 85%. You're listening to Money for Nothing and I am Renita Malhotra-Hora. We'll see you back tomorrow. Now it's time for the half-hour news. The American Central Bank, the Federal Reserve, is announcing the end of its financial strategy known as quantitative easing. Under the scheme, the Fed bought up financial assets with newly created money. It's estimated to have cost three and a half trillion U.S. dollars. Here's the BBC's John Sopel in Washington. Over six years, the Federal Reserve has pumped vast sums into the U.S. economy with three very simple goals to get banks lending companies investing and consumers spending after the near paralysis and economic slump brought by the financial crisis of 2008. At the moment, the US economy is growing strongly. Unemployment has fallen sharply and consumer confidence is rising. But what nobody knows for now is whether it will continue on that trajectory once QE has been consigned to history. LegCo President and pro-Beijing DAB lawmaker Zhang Yoxing has said he doesn't believe foreigners are the driving force behind the Occupy Central civil disobedience movement. Robert Kemp reports. Mr Zheng's comments on cable TV appear to contradict the view often expressed by mainland media that people from outside China are funding the Occupy movement in order to start a so-called colour revolution. Earlier this month, the chief executive CY Leung said forces from other countries had been encouraging the mass protests, though he refused to identify them. A Hong Kong member of the National People's Congress, Rita Fan, has also made similar suggestions. Protest leaders, though, deny they have overseas backing. They say they are fighting for democracy and greater equality.